Howdy, you're listening to Think Brasses, a project of Bryan College Station Habitat for Humanity focused on local policies that help families thrive. This podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, and Alexa. If you haven't already, please subscribe to Think Brasses and give us a stunning review. Hopes are rising for a COVID-19 vaccine as this virus has already ended many lives and livelihoods, and we don't yet know the full impact on city and state government revenue. So when Think Brasses came across an article that discusses ways a local community can help reduce the spread of a virus through better housing options, we thought it would be valuable to Bryan College Station. Luckily, the three authors agreed to come on our show to discuss their ideas. The three guests on our show today are all scholars from, from the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Salim Firth is a senior research fellow and co-director of the Urbanity Project at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. He studies regional, urban, and macroeconomic trends and policies and has testified before the U.S. Senate and House of Representatives. Previously, he worked at the Heritage Foundation and Amherst College. His writing has been featured in National Affairs, American Affairs, The City, and Public Discourse, and he wrote regularly for the Wall Street Journal's Think Tank blog. He earned his PhD in economics from, from the University of Rochester in 2011. Emily Hamilton is also a senior research fellow and co-director of the Urbanity Project at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Her research focuses on urban economics and land use policy. She has authored numerous academic articles and policy papers. Her writing has appeared in USA Today, The Washington Post, and The Los Angeles Times. She contributes to the, market, to the blog Market Urbanism. Hamilton received her Ph.D. in economics from George Mason University. Nolan Gray is a Ph.D. student in economics at the University of California, Los Angeles. Gray earned a Master of City and Regional Planning degree at Rutgers University and received B.A.s in Philosophy and Political Science from the University of Kentucky. He was a research fellow in the Urbanity Project at the, George, at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. His research focuses on land use regulation, housing affordability, and urban design. We hope you get value out of this episode and share it with your neighbors. We will get through 2020 together. Just remember, think local, think Brazos. My name is Charles Coates. I'm also joined with Whitney Coates. You'll notice, those of you watching the video, that we are sitting closer than six feet. Uh, that's because we are married and we co-produced this uh, program. This is our kitchen. Yeah, and we're actually in our kitchen. <laughs> So we are really happy to be joined by three scholars uh, from the Mercatus Center. Uh, Those are Emily Hamilton, Salim Firth, and Nolan Gray. And they published an article this summer that is called, let me make sure I get it right, uh, Policies to Help Communities Recover Housing Restrictions. And so this is why we brought them on this show today to talk to them about their article their ideas and some things that may actually help um, our own community here in Bryan College Station. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having having us. us. Yeah, thank you. Um, Just to get us started today, I'm curious how each of you became interested in housing policy in general. Anyone can join in. Although first, uh, I fell into an internship in the city planning department of my hometown, Grand Junction, Colorado, in between uh, semesters of undergrad, and uh, had really never thought much at all about, about urban policy or urban development prior to that, but got extremely interested in it thanks to that internship and have been working on it in some capacity ever since. Very cool. Um, how about you, Salim? 
So I was a macroeconomist by training and uh, working on a large project once where I was trying to pull together uh, a lot of different costs from, from different sectors. It was just struck me how housing was just bigger than everything else combined hmm. in terms of the costs that it imposes on, on middle-class families in the U.S. And um, then I also sort of realized that there was more interesting work, honestly, being done in urban economics than in macroeconomics. And uh, so I, I sort of have done a, a mid-career or quarter career change and uh, retrained myself as an urban economist. And it's been great. Very cool. And yeah, I, I think I was um, kind of swept up in the moment. I, I was reading people like uh, Stephen Smith and Emily Hamilton on market urbanism. Um, around that time, I moved from Lexington, where I was paying $260 a month for a room and a house within walking distance of downtown. Nice. Um, <laughs> to an apartment that was an hour commute outside of DC for about 1200 for my bedroom. Um, and that's a good way to get radicalized on housing policy. Yeah. Um, and um, the rest is history. Yeah. Okay. Well, for our part, for, for anyone listening, uh, Whitney and I, we we're new to these topics compared to the three folks we're talking to today. Uh, but we got, into housing really through Habitat for Humanity and the work that we do in Bryan College Station. And we started um, asking the question of why. So rather than what is going on, why are people in overcrowded situations? Why can they not afford a decent place to live? And so- um, why, does our, why does our line keep getting longer? Yeah, why does our line of people we need to serve, what are the causes of this? And so we have over the last few years come across quite a, uh, a number of articles and things that y'all have uh, published. And so we are really interested to see this article that gets down to the local level. What do local cities maybe need to do to not only, um, so it's this nexus of the pandemic and housing that we found really interesting. So again, the article that we'd, we'd like to talk about is the policies to help communities recover housing restrictions. And we will do, I believe we'll put a link in the show notes as well, yeah. right? Yeah, we can do that. So in this article, you know, y'all can expound, you know, in more detail than I can, but Long story short, you pointed to uh, several, you really focused on overcrowding and nursing homes and uh, low income situations where, um, and certain policies that can actually help to deal with this. And you focused on accessory dwelling units as well as homeless shelters and low cost housing. Um, Why do you think particularly the ADUs, how can um, being able to build those accessory dwelling units, how can that be something that will help with overcrowding and thus with the um, spread of the pandemic? So I want to I answer or, or ask one of my colleagues to answer a basic, more basic question before that, because I think this is really important for our audience today, because not everybody gets this. And that's the difference between overcrowding and density. So, Nolan, do you want to break that down? Those sound really similar, but to us, they're opposites. How does that make sense? Right. So it's a distinction that might sound wonky, but it's, it's, it's really crucial for public policymaking in this space. So when the coronavirus first starts spreading, we get all of these somewhat hysterical news articles about how density is driving the spread of the coronavirus. Uh, people are looking at places like New York. But, but density and, and overcrowding are very different. So density is um, the number of people uh, or the number of units for a given acre of land or, or, or square mile of land. Um, and so 
overcrowding is the number of people per bedroom in an apartment. And so the, dis- the distinction is important because you might have a very high uh, density as you do in a place like the Upper East Side. Um, but everyone living in the Upper East Side, generally more affluent, uh, is in their own bedroom or they live alone. So the risk of the infection spreading is actually pretty minimal with just pure density, as opposed to a neighborhood in New York City like Jackson Heights, where in many cases, a lot of immigrant families and you have multi-generational households living in a single bedroom or you have multiple families living in the same um, unit. And so in those contexts, the spread of, of, of the infection uh, is a very high risk. Uh, but these are two fundamentally different things. And um, overcrowding, as you know, we're going to argue over the course of this conversation, is, is really a functioning of, of, of not enough housing being built. Um, and, and really overcrowding in a certain way is, is a function of not enough density. Hmm. So, so back to your question, then an, an ADU, an accessory dwelling unit, is like this little secondary uh, either part of your house or like an outbuilding next to your house. And so it can literally unbundle hmm. a multi-generational family. So you can still live with grandma, but she has her own bathroom and kitchen. Wow. And if you've been exposed to coronavirus, she doesn't have to be. And you can set up lawn chairs, you know, 15 feet apart and have a conversation, which actually in my house, we literally did that uh, three weeks ago. We had friends who needed to come to Washington and uh, for, for some bureaucratic business, uh, but they'd had coronavirus. They were recovering. They didn't feel, they didn't feel bad, but they might've been infectious. And we have a little uh, suite with a separate entrance to the house. They stayed there and we set up lawn chairs and, you know, uh, put on sweaters to stay warm and chatted outside. So we didn't have to have that exposure, but they could still have a place to stay with us. Wow. So that's, that's a really good example. Sorry, Emily, were you going to jump in there? I was just going to add that early on in the pandemic, it became clear that nursing homes were an extremely difficult place to deal with the the spread of the virus. And also they're, of course, home to the most vulnerable population to the virus. Uh, And accessory dwelling units can provide um, an alternative to those those group settings um, and, and make intergenerational living uh, feasible. For that reason, AARP is a huge proponent of localities revising their their zoning ordinances to make it feasible for people to build accessory dwelling units if they'd like to house uh, elderly family members uh, or family members of any type there rather than in nursing homes or assisted living facilities. Wow. Okay. Another group that, that used ADUs a lot in this crisis was traveling nurses or anybody who um, you know, needed for some reason essentially to be essentially in the, in the coronavirus sense to be in another city. And yeah. normally they might have like stayed on a friend's couch and all of a sudden that was kind of unacceptable mm-hmm. uh, uh, risk wise. And so having real separate units, uh, you know, really, really changed the, the game for people who wanted to be able to serve in New York City and elsewhere, places that were hit really hard. Wow. And are there actually uh, cities throughout the country, would you say the majority of towns and cities allow these these ADUs or, or does it seem like there are a lot that don't? I know in our city, we have maybe one location I can think of that allows ADUs as a way um, to, to really be able to rent them out for mm-hmm. income. I believe you can do the granny flat, but beyond that, you really can't. Um, and I kind of wanted to get a sense from what y'all have seen. Um, 
are a lot of communities moving towards allowing this or is there still a lot of pushback, do you think? I think most, oh, go ahead, Nolan. I was just going to say it's 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 somewhat still of a new idea. You know, it's been floating kind of in the ether for a few sure. decades now. Um, I think that a lot of cities are looking into this um, as housing costs have become a major issue. And I would just want to add another benefit, you know, beyond the coronavirus um, sort of context is ADUs allow for homeowners to have an additional source of income. Um, so this can be particularly valuable for um, empty nesters who might want to stay in their home or people who want to retire in their home, but they need help defraying the costs of things like property taxes or maintenance. Sure. Um, so in addition to the housing, they're popular as a sort of anti-displacement uh, policy. Right. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, getting- no, one's, no one's right that it's kind of new. I'm sorry, I jumped in there. No, 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 no one's right that it's new, right? So it's, it's not, it's new and it's old. These have been around forever, um, but then they were basically banned from most single family homes for- you know, from 1930, 1940, something like that, um, you know, through the end of the, the last century. And it's only recently people are realizing what we're missing in our housing stock. So older houses often have them, hmm. but they're relatively rare in anything built since World War II. Yeah, I've seen some, some around town, mm-hmm. actually. Yeah. Um, so to give you an example, you know, you were talking about the overcrowding versus the density. We have a, a really good example. It's sad, but a, but a good example of the overcrowding and maybe what something like a ADU could have done for this family. We have a family in what we call our um, pipeline, Habitats uh, pipeline, where we haven't been able to build them a house yet, but we have a relationship there. Um, it's actually two families that are living in one two-bedroom uh, trailer or mobile home. Mm-hmm. And this spring, one... Um, one of the household members was um, a registered nurse or something like that, came home with the coronavirus and within a matter of days, both of these families were sick. They weren't able to isolate it. And what happened is, is the breadwinners were out of commission. Luckily, no one died, but mm-hmm. it disrupted this family majorly. And um, so, so to us, you know, where we haven't been able to build them a house yet, they're still in the situation. Boy, if there was something a little more short term that right. that they could be able to do, um, man, it would help them out a lot. But that's kind of that was our thought process when we were thinking of examples here of this overcrowding, and it's a it's a sad thing. I think a lot of people here locally have seen the headlines where the major metros, um, you know, they're associating the population density with the, the coronavirus pandemic and you know we're a growing town but we don't have the the urban density that a lot of towns do uh, but we definitely have had cases of coronavirus in our nursing homes and, and in the trailers yeah right now the highest caseload is in north dakota which is not famous for its subways yeah. <laughs> right <laughs> golly i mean it's it's uh it's scary definitely well so- the kind of density that we're talking about in a context like college station or, or, or brian um would really just be, you know, a few more garden apartments or a few more townhouses, Um, more houses at the bottom of the market, so to speak, that could accommodate these people who they might be able to purchase a $100,000 home if the market was allowed to build them. Um, But, you know, in many cases, uh, zoning regulations or other sorts of uh, land use policies make it very difficult to build. I mean, when we talk about density, we're not talking about Manhattan. We're we're really talking about these very small increases in density, taking a 5,000 square foot lot and putting an ADU in the backyard. Yeah. 
So what would you um, what would you say in your experience in terms of municipalities? What do you think is the driving factor towards resistance to this type of density that we're talking about here? Where we're talking about garden flats, we're talking about accessory dwelling units, we're talking about above the garage units. Um, I know Salim mentioned a few minutes ago that it, it seemed like a lot of these types of units kind of went um, illegal in a, in a sense after uh, at some point in the 20th century. We just kind of like to get a sense of, of why that is from your experience. Well, with, with ADUs in particular, I think that we've seen a lot of reform in that, that particular space because they are, there is the least political resistance to allowing ADUs versus other types of new housing construction. I think a lot of, of homeowners can see themselves wanting an ADU, perhaps not today, but maybe at, at some stage in their life for, uh, for a, a young adult child or, or a family member or to earn some extra retirement income. Uh, but in general, there's a lot of opposition to allowing um, built-out neighborhoods to, to change at all, sometimes for very understandable reasons. People don't want more cars on the street, don't want to um, have parking be more congested. Um, but the, the costs of, of restricting um, density that keep neighborhoods exactly the way they are without accommodating more people over time is enormous for those households that are, are struggling to afford housing. Yeah, because then you have a lot of uh, displacement, which is uh, the type of thing that we see quite a bit here in this town with the clients that, that we work with. Um, definitely, I can see that. We've heard a lot of talk, um, I guess, in, in this community about um, not just the pandemic and making sure people don't get sick, but what comes afterwards as far as uh, economic recovery. So, so we've gone into a little bit how some of these um, developing more units could, uh, could really help with uh, keeping down the spread of the coronavirus. But what about as far as a community being able to recover from the pandemic? Is there any uh, financial reason why uh, a community should encourage building out their neighborhoods, if that makes sense? I don't know. I guess that's well, there's a, a huge um, amount of, of uncertainty right now, I'd say, in terms of what office and retail environments are going to look like following the pandemic. Uh, so many of us have gotten used to remote work where we, we might not have thought that was feasible before. Um, and, and people are changing, of course, their, their shopping habits, buying more online rather than in stores. Um, so I, I think localities, uh, one thing they can do to make themselves more resilient to these potential changes is introducing more flexibility into their land use regulations to allow, um, allow existing buildings and redevelopment that accommodates um, changing, changing trends, regardless of, of what those might be in the longer term. Right, right. And that's a really important point that, that Emily made. And just to put some flesh on that, a lot of towns and suburbs are, you know, they're having these large strip malls um, or even worse, these large indoor malls um, 
that in many cases right now are declaring bankruptcy, they were already in a pretty rough spot going into the pandemic. Um, and in many cases, these were the sort of key rateables for these municipalities. This was the key source of tax revenue. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if you're a municipality, um, you know, if you're doing the budget for even a small town or a suburb, you got to be looking at how are we going to fill that gap, number one. But number two, how are we going to productively reuse this huge portion of land that's, um, you know, pretty crucially located? Um, and so these are two challenges that cities had to think about before the pandemic. I mean, I, I have articles from 2017 where I'm writing about the retail apocalypse, right? right. All of that's been turned up to 11 now. Mm-hmm. Um, and exactly like Emily said, in many cases, these, these um, strip malls or, or indoor malls have a zoning overlay that basically says you can only build a strip mall here. But if a developer were to come in and say, I'll build maybe a mixed use with shops on the bottom and then two or three stories of apartments above, that would be a good development for a city. That's rateables, that's tax revenue, that's you know dealing with an unsightly lot. Um, or if a developer comes in and says, I-, I can build some townhouses here and then maybe a little market center. Um, cities need to be open to, I think, some of the possibilities that currently weren't being considered in the past. And, and this is only going to get more important after um, so many retail chains. I mean, you had Toys R Us is gone. How many others are Sears? Um, so many had declared bankruptcy in the early portion of the coronavirus pandemic. So this is only a problem that's going to get worse. It does seem like that what you're describing is pretty widespread because it sounds just like College Station. I mean, we have a large indoor mall named Post Oak Mall that just recently declared bankruptcy. Yep. I think they're going to work through restructuring, it sounds like. So people aren't necessarily losing their jobs just yet. Um, you know, I don't know what will happen, but we've lost our Toys R Us. And Sears is Sears still there? I'm not sure. No, they've been um, gone a while. But but yeah, it's uh, exactly yeah. Like I mean that's that. that's and then I I've heard that the Caucasian City Council is trying to figure out what to do with it because that yeah. is probably a very large source of revenue for them. Or it might not even be housing. In many cases, it might be you know Amazon warehouses are consuming much more space and and sure. online retail is still going to consume a lot of floor area. So if mm-hmm. if that space could be used for warehousing or distribution centers, um, we're focused on housing for understandable yeah. reasons. But that's another productive way, and that would get you jobs and and rateables and you don't yeah. have an ugly vacant lot with an old 1960s strip mall. <laughs> so, yeah, the, the, oh, go ahead. No, no, no. You go ahead. I was going to change the subject, but I want to make sure we flush this this sure. out. Sure. So, so the coronavirus showed us, you know, really, really steeply the, the value of flexibility, uh, right? So restaurants being able to set up patio seating. Um, <laughs> You know, we we've heard of business models that nobody thought were going to be a thing, right? So we, I had a friend who was dropping his kindergartner off every day at a place where they essentially had kitty offices so they could all be separate not spread any germs um and then there was an adult sort of floating around looking through the windows and making sure they were all doing their own schoolwork. um <laughs> okay. you know that's a form of child care right nobody yeah. thought that was going to be a thing but if your city requires every change of use to go through a long process a parking study um a new permit Right, you're you're going to short circuit that, and the 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 pandemic was an era of extremely rapid change. The recovery, the change won't be quite so rapid, but there's still going to be lots of change. And so, if you want to have successful businesses and successful residential models, mm-hmm. you basically want to pull away all the restrictions that aren't about health, you know, safety, sewage, you know, kind of the basics of like, well, we we know we don't want anything that's going to fall down on people's heads. But conditional on this building not falling down on your head, figure out a way to make it profitable. 
Um, right, so getting rid of parking requirements for any use change, that's probably uh, the lowest hanging fruit and maybe the number one barrier in a lot of cities for reusing space that's already built. So this is not about building something new. And, and I think it's important when we're talking about this post, post-COVID growth, mm-hmm. it's not necessarily growth in the 2005 sense of the word, right, where we pave miles of roads, mm-hmm. lay out a ton of new infrastructure, and have a huge population boom population might not grow much. It's growth in, you know, re revitalizing and seeing life come back to spaces that have died during this pandemic. Yeah. So um, it sounds like all in all, the article y'all wrote this summer, what you've talked about today, the underlying factor is flexibility. Like if you want to navigate this post-COVID future, uh, if you want to make sure that you don't have a huge housing crisis on your hands, or if you have one trying to deal with it, it's flexibility of the policymakers and even of, of neighbors, I guess, uh, to be willing to see their, their, uh, their neighbors, you know, their, their properties evolve and grow with the times. And uh, I think that's hugely important. And we would uh, really, yeah, in the future, we'd enjoy getting to talk to you on or off recording um, to kind of hear your thoughts on some things. I know y'all are, uh, Y'all are busy, but it has been really good to get to get to talk to you today. Likewise, we are all huge fans of your work. Well, thank you so much. We appreciate it. Um, okay. Well, uh, this has been Think Brazos, and we want to thank Salim Firth, Nolan Gray, and Emily Hamilton for joining us today. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Think Brasses. If you haven't already, please subscribe and leave us a review. You can also send us an email. But most importantly, just remember, think local, think Brasses. Think Brasses.